Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 19th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This will be my 17th discussion on 2C line in the series. I'm not going to entitle this one Pragmatic Genesis, even though it touches on Genesis. I, I don't... Um, it's time to move on, and we're going to get into the rest of the Bible. These next, I don't think I have 10 sessions left. I probably have a half dozen, perhaps. I don't even know I have that many. But we're going to continue to discuss 2C line until I'm satisfied that I've touched all the bases. Since I've been doing this off the top of my head, and I really don't remember what I talked about in the last 16 sessions, and, and that's always the case, even if it was all last week. Well, well, it might be a while yet, or maybe I've already said too much. I want to clear up a question from last night's chat room about ducks and geese. The word swan. In, in, in the King James version of the Bible, it's not their fault that it's there. It was actually in the Septuagint translation. The word swan is tan shemeth in Hebrew. A tan is a monster, a sea serpent. Or on land, it can refer to, or it's at least translated as, a jackal, a carnivorous dog. Strong says the root word of Tanshemeth, the word translated swan in the King James Version of the Bible, and, and we see that in the list of unclean foods, which is in Scripture in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 18, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 16. That word swan, Tanshemeth, Tanshemeth comes from a root word, which means to blow away or to destroy. Now, not for nothing, that's hardly descriptive of the peaceful, elegant swan. The translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich, they translated the same word as vulture, which is at least more appropriately described by the meaning of the name. In truth, the King James translators seem to have blindly followed the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translators, I mean, don't get me wrong, for the most part they understood Hebrew, and to some extent they were very confused on names. They were removed from the culture of, of Moses by 1,200 years. They were removed from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah by 250, perhaps. The Septuagint translators seem to have done like I did with many other names. They just guessed. It can be proven with some names that they did indeed just guess. In any case, the Tan Shemeth of Hebrew is unlikely to be a swan. It certainly describes a bird which is destructive. However, even if it were a swan, what does that have to do with the cleanness of ducks or geese for the dinner table? The connection is merely a modern connection because all three birds have webbed feet. 
because swans have web feet, somebody conjectured that perhaps we should meet birds with web feet. Imagining why swan could be in a list. Swan doesn't belong in a list at all. Conjecture is not based on scripture. In fact, the other birds in that section mentioned along with the swan all seem to be birds of prey or carrion eaters, while swan, geese, and ducks do not fit into those categories. So they do not even seem to fit the general categorization and reasoning behind this list of unclean birds. The idea that ducks and geese are scripturally unclean is therefore nothing but a rumor based on conjecture, which is in turn based on an apparently bad translation. In my estimation, it's time to cook bad goose. And with this, we'll move on to explaining to seed line part 17. I want to discuss the insistence of the universalists, whether they're Christian identity or otherwise, who insist upon trying to squeeze the other races into the Bible. Why the hell are you doing that, especially if you're Christian identity? First, from Genesis chapter 10, that, well, well, that's where the mainstream Protestants in the Catholic Church try to squeeze the other races in, and it doesn't wash, it doesn't wash scripturally, it doesn't wash historically, it doesn't wash genetically, it doesn't wash from any angle. So a lot of identity Christians retreat. They can't go back to Genesis chapter 2, which would violate the law of kind after kind, which at least most identity Christians understand. So they go back to Genesis chapter 1. That's where Compare and Swift went when they had to squeeze niggers into Scripture. They tried to squeeze them in as the sixth-day man as compared to Adam, the eighth-day man. I believe that the first two installments of our Pragmatic Genesis series blew that harebrained idea out of the water permanently. I don't understand how anybody could listen to what we had to say in those two podcasts and contradict it because you're just making yourself look like a fool to imagine that it was a six-day Adam and an eighth-day Adam. It's absolutely foolish. It's beyond childish. You're a clown, clowning with Scripture. What's just as bad is Thomas Davies. Thomas Davies... This um, character at AngloSaxonIsrael.com, don't go there. You're wasting your time. He likes to quote this Thomas Davies and claim to be following him. Thomas Davies insisted that the Genesis 1.26 Adam was a different Adam from the Genesis 1.27 Adam. Well, he was a clown too. The Genesis 1.26 Adam is only a proposal for the creation of the Genesis 1.27 Adam and the Genesis 126 Adam is not a creation at all. The proposal becomes a fact in Genesis 127. So the latest scheme by some of these universalists is to insist that the non-Adamic races of people are the beasts of the field or the beasts of the earth. Take your pick. The living creatures of Genesis 
124 and 125 in the beast creation. That's like absolutely ridiculous when you look at those terms in the rest of Scripture. The various uses of the terms living creature or beast of the field or beast of the earth or cattle, as we see in Genesis 124 and 125, is something which Clifton Emmerheiser has already done an in-depth study on. His series on the beast of the field is available on his website. There are many times in Scripture where all of these terms are clearly used in a context where the reference can only be to four-legged and other animals. If only once any of these terms are used for animals, then they cannot be labels which specifically describe the creation of other races because they are clearly not technical terms for those races. And if they are not labels specifically describing the creation of other races, then the creation of any other race is not mentioned in the Bible since there are no specific biblical terms for the non-Adamic so-called races of people in Scripture. None, zero, you won't find one. The same people who insist that the so-called other races are found in the Genesis 1 creation as beasts would then, and this is incredibly dishonest, they would then attempt to label those same other races as nations and men in correlation with the remainder of Scripture, or at least with the New Testament and beyond, and in the context of the judgment of God. If indeed they were beasts in Genesis 1, they're still beasts in Revelation chapter 22. You can't make men out of them if they're beasts. The first law of God, kind after kind. But they're not even beasts of the Genesis 1 creation. First, let me say that while the so-called other races certainly do await the judgment of God. It is not in the manner which the universalists expect. And they will certainly not be judged by their works, since that is something which is reserved for a damnic man alone and is apart from his salvation. It's a separate judgment. He's already been judged and saved. Romans chapter 5. Oh, I would get there in about two weeks on my Friday night program. Their insistences, these people who try to squeeze these other races as, into Genesis 1 as beasts, their insistences represent back doors to universalism, Canaanite bait-and-switch sleight-of-hand tricks. They're no better than the card shock on a corner in Greenwich Village, the old shell game. No matter how they describe themselves, they are indeed universalists. The Bible describes itself as the book of the race of Adam. And in truth, no other race can be included in any of the promises which it offers Adamic man. In fact, we hope to elucidate in the coming weeks, it won't be tonight, 
that whenever the other races are referred to in scripture, in scripture, it is in a very negative light. They're usually, well, well, they're almost always a destroying force. In fact, I'm safe to say that they're always a destroying force. And we'll do a program on that perhaps next week. Now, concerning these same universalists, and they're arguing that the other races do fit into Genesis 124 and 125 creation of beasts, they nevertheless admit that the other races are indeed nothing but beasts. So the universalism is unfounded regardless of their hypocrisy. In truth, they refuse to recognize the obvious because the word of God does not recognize the other races of so-called hominids specifically. The general terms for beasts are sometimes applied to them where they must be mentioned in prophecy. But those terms are pejoratives. A pejorative is a word which is not normally derogatory. But when it's used in a certain context, it has an insulting a disparaging or a derogatory effect. Calling a dog a dog is not an insult. However, calling a person a dog is considered to be an insult. So in that event, the word dog becomes a pejorative. Calling a so-called Christian identity cluster a clown, well, some people might think that's cruel, but very often the label fits. The word clown in those instances is considered to be a pejorative. He's not really a clown. I, I mean, he makes me laugh, but he doesn't wear the big shoes and the red nose and the goofy wig and the funny makeup. So it's probably an insult to clowns to call some of these clowns clowns. I'll give one example of the word translated cattle in Genesis 1.24 where most two seed line identity Christians would insist that it refers to non-white hominids from Leviticus 18.23. Leviticus 18.23 states, Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Well, you know, if a woman stands in front of a dog and lies down with it, even if the woman could conceive a half-dog child, that, that might be a confusion of seed, but it wouldn't cause confusion among men. They'd look at it and say, wow, that's a half-dog. But if a woman lied down in front of a, a Negro, and, and in a couple of generations you got a high yeller, and then in 10 years, you got a whole damn town destroyed. That's what happens. That's confusion. So most identity Christians rightly understand that Leviticus 18.23 could just as well refer to a non-Adamic so-called person as well as to a, a real four-legged quadruped. Well, on both occasions in Leviticus 18.23, the Hebrew term is 
behema. We get our English word behemoth from that term. Behemoth is a large animal, usually a beast of burden, an ox or something like that. It's Strong's number 929. Now here most identity Christians realize that Leviticus 18.23 really can't be referring to a four-legged beast, or why should the beast be destroyed? Here is another example from Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves. That ye not go up into the mount, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. Well, that, does that really refer to the little squirrel that's on the other side of the mountain? Here also, the word for beast is that same word, behemoth. Paul quotes this passage in Hebrews chapter 12:20 when he writes of the holy mountain of God, and I believe he's using this mount as a allegory for the children of Israel, that, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. The beasts of these passages are certainly hominids. They have hands, they could touch the mountain, make a willful decision to do so. They're not merely quadrupeds. Yet that's the same word behemoth translated cattle in Genesis 1.24. And it's often translated to refer to beast of the burden Throughout the whole scripture, I'll give a couple of examples. Leviticus 7.25, where it says, For whosoever eateth the fat of the beast, of which men offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. So we, we understand it has to be talking about scripturally clean animals. Even that soul that eats it, meaning the fat, shall be cut off from his people. It was a command not to eat the fat. Here the word clearly refers to a clean, edible quadruped. But in Exodus 12, 12, and 13, it seems to refer to a hominid. In Leviticus 18:23, it definitely refers to hominids. So what we have is a word that means beast, and refers to beasts of burden, and it's used as a pejorative. It's not a technical term for non-white races. It's a pejorative that can refer to non-white races, as well as its normal function, which is in reference to four-legged animals. Another instance is in Nehemiah 2.12, where he has trouble getting into Jerusalem because of the rubble left from the Babylonians 70 or so years before. And it says, I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what, God, what my God had put in my heart to do with Jerusalem. Neither was I... What, was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon? Now, the beast he rode upon wasn't a nigger. 
it was probably, this behema was probably an ass, a horse, or a camel. Pick one. They were all used for transportation in Nehemiah's day. The only valid conclusion is that behema, or beast, is a word for quadruped beasts of burden, edible or otherwise, but it is also used as a pejorative at certain times for certain non-Adamic hominids. The phrase beast of the field is indeed sometimes a pejorative term in prophecy, indicating the non-white races. We're going to get an earful of that next week. However, on many occasions, it must refer simply to the animals of creation. And therefore, it is not a technical term for non-whites. Neither can it be. Here's an example where David describes God's creation in Psalm 8. Where David refers to a Adamic man from verse 6 and says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yeah, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in the earth. Now, if the phrase, beast of the field, means hominids, then one has to assume that David omitted all of the lions, tigers, squirrels, groundhogs, oxen, horses, donkeys, the deer, the elands, the heart beasts. David omitted all of them in this poem so that he could reference niggers and Chinamen? That's crazy. Certainly not. Rather, the face beast of the field in this psalm, Psalm 8, references the innocent creatures of God's creation, and niggers and Chinamen are not considered. It is so childish to insist that that phrase, beast of the field, refers to niggers and Chinamen and other non-whites. It's absurd. Christian identity has to grow the hell up. Fall for this crap from this clown in Chicago and half these other turkeys with their childish, plainly ridiculous interpretations of Scripture. That's just the truth. That's all I speak. Again, from Exodus chapter 23, from verse 29. Yahweh, talking about driving out the Hivites, the Hittites, and the Canaanites from the land before the children of Israel. At verse 29, he says, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased and inherit the land. Now, it's silly to think that after the Canaanites had driven out of the land, that niggers or Chinamen would move into it too quickly for the Israelites to be able to occupy it. Where the hell would they come from? There wasn't any HUD in those days. There was no Section 8 housing, moving niggers into every empty building in a town. <laughs> right, they're emptied. There was no Century 21 advertising homes abroad in those days. Come on. 
The phrase beast of the field in this passage must therefore refer to the wild animals, that the wild animals would infest these towns before the children of Israel could occupy them, and not to some pre-Adamic people. The only valid conclusion is that the term beast of the field and similar expressions are terms for the animals of creation, but they are sometimes used as pejoratives for certain hominids. Hominids who have no other name except for these pejoratives. They have to be called something. They're called by that beast of the field in Isaiah chapter 56. I pray we get to discuss that one next week. With all of this being said, perhaps it would be expedient to turn our attention to angels. Let's talk about angels, something I've never been. An angel in Scripture is simply a messenger. However, it is fully evident that such angels can be spirit beings, or they can be men, or sometimes they can be something else, an owl, perhaps, a bird of prey, a bird as, as an omen. We see that in Scripture. There is one place in Old Testament Scripture where an angel is something other than a messenger, and that is at Psalm 68:17. It's the only place this, that this particular meaning exists. Here it is with the surrounding verses, so that the context is apparent. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yeah, Yahweh will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Paul quotes this in reference to Christ. Thou hast received gifts from men. Yeah, for the rebellious also. That Yahweh God might dwell among them the rebellious being a reference to the children of Israel in that psalm. In this passage, that word for angel is Strong's number 8136, Shinan. It's not the regular word for angel. It comes from a word, 8132, which means to alter or to change. Rather than angels, the Hebrew would be better represented with the words changing ones, or changed ones, and that would be much more appropriate. For one possible understanding, I would refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For another possible understanding, I would refer to Daniel chapter 4, verses 13 through 23, and what Daniel says about, in, in his Interpretation of the Nazar's dream about the watchers and the holy ones. I brought this passage to light here to show that the concept of angelic transformation is apparent in Scripture, 
we see it again at the transfiguration on the mount. Although I would be pressed, and I would, outside of the transfiguration on the mount, to offer further examples from canonical scripture at the moment. There are other examples, such as in Genesis chapter 19, in the account of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where angels who appear to be men have abilities well beyond those of man. And I'll leave that right there, and, and that could just hang there. I just wanted to attest that the idea is in Scripture. The Apostle Jude mentions angels which kept not their first estate. He says that they are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. These are certainly those angels of Revelation chapter 12 who rebelled against God, who were cast out of heaven, whose place was no longer found in heaven, and this happened before the creation of Adam because that old serpent is one of these angels that was cast out of heaven, as were explained in Revelation chapter 12. But we're not explained in Genesis because Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world support for Revelation chapter 12 is found elsewhere in the Gospels, primarily Luke chapter 10, verses 18 through 20. We'll talk about those next week. And probably a few more times. Jude says that these angels which kept not their first estate that they are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. He compares their sin to that of Sodom and Gomorrah in that they committed fornication in the pursuit of strange flesh. He speaks in the present tense when he says that they defile the flesh while they reject authority, and that they are spots in your feasts of charity, feasting together without fear. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. So these fallen angels are under these chains of darkness. This chain of darkness is a permanent condition. And while they're under those chains of darkness... They're also walking about us and partying, partying it up with us. They're at your corner bar right now having a beer with your son-in-law. Watching a football game with your brother-in-law. You see those beer commercials with the one nigger in the middle? And, and the three or four stupid-ass white guys yucking it up with them. That's the spot in their feasts of charity. According to Jude, the fallen angels are among us. We read corroboration for this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, where the apostle describes the same entities in a very similar manner. However, Peter's words 
must be followed more carefully because he is alternately comparing the righteous and the unrighteous. Here we will read some of the things he says about the unrighteous from 2 Peter 2.4. 2, For if Yahweh did not spare the messengers who had done wrong, but having cast them into Tartarus, Tartarus, that's the Greek word, that's the original Greek word for hell. The word Hades came along a little later. If I had to guess where Tartarus was, I'd probably say Kenya, the Sudan, that's as good a guess as any. But having cast them into Tartarus, into a pit, or some manuscripts have, into chains of darkness. He had delivered them, being kept for judgment. The prince knows to deliver the pious from trial, but to keep the unrighteous being punished for a day of judgment. That's when they all go into the lake of fire. And especially those going after the flesh with desires of defilement. The Jews are the biggest race pushers in the world. And niggers are omnisexual. So are Chinamen. And especially those going after the flesh with desires of defilement and despising authority. Presumptuous adventurers, not fearing honor, they blaspheme. And these, and this next line's pretty important, having been born as natural, irrational animals. The King James has natural brute beasts there. Perhaps it's more poetic than the, than the Christian New Testament. Now, that does not mean they were created as animals. They were born as natural, irrational animals. Into destruction and corruption in which blaspheming they are ignorant in their corruption, they also shall perish. Pay attention to what Peter's saying here. Those angels that sinned, now they have been born as natural, irrational animals. And they're around us, going after the flesh with desires of defilement and despising authority. And Peter's talking about the present tense. How could they have been angels? And then a couple of thousand years later, they're born as natural, irrational animals. The book of I should say the Enoch literature will answer that one for us. Born as naturally rational animals into destruction and corruption. They were born in corruption because they're bastards. They're not Yahweh's creation. They're a corruption of it. In which blaspheming, they are ignorant in their corruption, they also shall perish. Doing injustice for the wages of injustice, regarding luxury of pleasure by day, stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you. There's the Jew and the chink in the beer commercial. The nigger was in the other one. Having eyes full of adultery and unable to cease from wrongdoing, 
enticing, unstable souls. The stupid-ass white guys hanging out with them, giving them their sisters. Having hearts, exercise for greediness, cursed children, abandoning the straight road. These are the angels which left their first estate. The angels that sinned, they've wandered astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, the same route, the path of race mixing. These are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest for whom the gloom of darkness is kept. We cannot imagine that the chains of darkness or the gloom of darkness mentioned by Jude and Peter are a reference to some literal pit somewhere in the desert regions of Arabia or anywhere else in the earth where a bunch of winged men sit waiting for the wrath of God to come upon them. Rather, the darkness they are bound in must refer to something else since these men certainly started are stated to be among us by the apostles. The chains can't be literal. They started out as angels, but their descendants were born as natural brute beasts, as the King James translates the phrase. And that, too, is a pejorative. The angels who sinned amongst us are still amongst us, but it is not them personally. Rather, it must be their descendants. Their stains and disgraces feasting together with us and spots in our feasts of charity. The only way their descendants could be among us if they are, is if they are truly the seed of the serpent and the wider tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was already in the midst of the garden when Adam was placed there. That is the best scriptural explanation for the existence of the so-called pre-Adamic races. For these reasons, as the Apostle John describes in his first epistle, there are people born of God. And there are people born of the world. From 1 John chapter 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, speak they of the world, and the world hears them. The people born of God are the descendants of Adam, the son of God, Luke 3.38. The people born of the world is everyone who is not of Adam. From Tertullian's Apology, an unlikely source, chapter 22, Tertullian was a Christian bishop and writer. He wrote, I think he started writing probably about 180 A.D. His home was Roman Carthage. Tertullian was writing Christian apologetics at a time 
when it would still cost you your head to do so in the Roman Empire, over 150 years before Christianity was actually tolerated, 130 years at least, he wasn't, I don't think he was perfect in my estimation, but who am I? He, he was certainly an honest and, and, and um, energetic defender of the Christian faith. He says in his Apology, chapter 22, and we affirm indeed the existence of certain spiritual essences, nor is their name unfamiliar. The philosophers acknowledge there are demons, Socrates himself waiting on a demon's will. Why not, since it is said that an evil spirit attached itself especially to him, even from his childhood, turning his mind, no doubt, from what was good. The poets are all acquainted with demons, too. Even the ignorant common people make frequent use of them in cursing. In fact, they call upon Satan, the demon chief, in their execrations, as though from some instinctive soul knowledge of him. Plato also admits the existence of angels. The dealers in magic, no less, come forward as witnesses to the existence of both kinds of spirits. We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books, how from angels who fell of their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood, condemned of God, along with the authors of their race. And that chief we have referred to, it will be for the present enough, however, that some account is given of their work. Their great business is the ruin of mankind. So from the very first, spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. Here Tertullian reflects the belief that certain angels fell from the grace of God. As I explained in the opening segments of Pragmatic Genesis, it doesn't matter where you want to believe the angels fell from. Myself, I don't necessarily believe that they fell from heaven or outer space, heaven being taken literally. The word heaven is often an, a, a, a word used allegorically to describe a government of God or a God-decreed government on earth. They could have fell from the grace of God on earth and met the description that they fell from heaven simply because heaven in Luke 10 and Revelation 12 may be used allegorically. We shouldn't argue over that detail. But these fallen angels did indeed rebel from God and fall from his grace, to say the least. Tertullian, he expressed that belief. He also expressed the belief by which he can only be referencing Peter, Jude, and the Revelation. He expressed the belief that a wicked demon brood, a wicked race of people, was amongst the population of Rome. At, by population of Rome, I mean the entire Greco-Roman world at the time that he wrote. Tertullian basically even though he didn't phrase it 
in the terminology which we phrase it, he basically believed in two seed line, an evil race and a good race. In the Garden of Eden, Adam is portrayed as being shown all of the beasts, naming them and not finding a wife. From Genesis chapter 2, and out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field. This is a reference to the Genesis 1 creation. And every fowl of the air, and brought them into Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helpmate for him. The conventional two-seed line explanation for this passage is that other so-called pre-Adamic races must have been among the beasts which God presented to Adam, because God certainly was not implying that Adam should find a mate amongst the quadrupeds. However, this conventional explanation is not necessarily correct and it is not necessarily scriptural. It is mere conjecture, sophistry, offering one possible explanation for the event. However, what if there had already existed a bad example for Adam of men mating with animals? Those angels, they started out as angels. They ended up being born as natural brute beasts. How did that happen? What if other beings, ostensibly those so-called fallen angels, had mated with the quadrupeds and the other beasts of creation and corrupted both the creation and themselves? Would that give Yahweh a sufficient reason to explain to Adam why he should not find a mate amongst them? I believe it would. That would be my assertion. And while it, too, can be dismissed as mere conjecture, at least it can be supported from the words of Peter, from the words of Jude, and from ancient literature. The passage, this passage I'm about to present, was presented before in part three of this series, back in October of last year. In the Enoch literature, in what is called the Book of Giants, the race of fallen angels is said to have perpetrated the corruption of species. From an, from an edition of the Qumran scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Mark, Michael Wise, Martin Abegg Jr., and Edward Cook. On page 247, there's a translation of the scroll known as 1Q. 23. That's a catalog number. That's the first K that Qumran is the one Q. It's fragment number 23. Or, or I'm sorry, it's manuscript number 23. And these are fragments 1 and 6 belonging to that manuscript. This is highly fragmented, so you'll have to bear with me because it's not going to be grammatical. I can only supply the words that are supplied to me in the translation. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 
beast of the field from every animal. Right there we see that beasts of the field are animals. From every bird for miscegenation. In the same source, that's the end of that quotation, and in the same source, 4Q, 531, fragment 2, they defiled, they begot giants and monsters, they begot, and behold, all the earth was corrupted. With its blood, and by the hand of giants, which did not suffice for them, and they were seeking to devour many, the monsters attacked it. And that's a highly fragmented manuscript also. Again, 4Q, 532. Column 2, fragments 1 through 6. Flesh, all monsters, will be, they would arise, lacking in true knowledge, because the earth grew corrupt. Mighty, they were considering, from the angels upon, in the end it will perish and die. They caused great corruption in the earth. This did not suffice to, they will be. And that's the end of it. While these are quite fragmentary, the general theme of these fragments from what is known as the Book of Giants is readily evident. A very similar version of what is related here in these manuscripts is found in one Enoch, in the Ethiopic version, translated by Charles, in chapters 86 and 88. I prefer to Dead Sea Scrolls, Enoch, because I understand from my own reading that the Ethiopic Enoch has some embellishments and interpolations which are probably not in the original. I've read both at length. It is highly probable that accounts such as these were the inspiration for the ancient chimera myths of both Greek and Near Eastern mythology and Hebrew scripture. Chimeras were creatures that were a part, part goat and part man, such as satyrs, or part horse and part man, such as centaurs. Cherubs were chimeras. Griffins were chimeras. There were other elaborate creatures as well. So far as I have read, in what I would consider to be legitimate apocryphal literature, it is only seen in the writings collectively known as One Enoch, or the Enoch literature from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are certainly much more reliable, that wicked demon spirits come from the spirits of bastards. The sectarian literature of the Qumran sect was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and also reflected this belief ostensibly from the Enoch literature. This next passage is from the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, William B. Erdman's publishing, volume 2, pages 1027 and 1028 originally translated by Martinez and Tigkalar, from the scroll designated 4Q510. This is proprietary, meaning it's peculiar to the Qumran sect. It's proprietary Qumran literature. 
sectarian literature. It's from something called Songs of the Sage. Here's a part of fragment one. Declare the splendor of his radiance in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, Lilith. Lilith is the name of a female demon. Owls and jackals and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge to make their hearts forlorn. And you have been placed in the era of the rule of wickedness and in the periods of humiliation of the sons of light, in the guilty periods of those defiled by iniquities, not for an everlasting destruction, but rather for the era of the humiliation of sin. Rejoice, righteous ones, in the wonderful God. So we see that Songs of the Sage also attempted to explain the presence of Adamic man in a sinful world. From the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, from the scroll designated 4Q511, also a part of the same work, Songs of the Sage, from Fragment 35. I spread the fear of God in the ages of my generation of my race, to exalt the name and to terrify with his power all spirits of the bastards, to subjugate them by his fear, not for all eternal times, but for the time of their dominion. From the Dead Sea Scroll Study Edition, from the scroll designated 4Q204, a part of the Enoch literature, this is Enoch literature. It is not sectarian literature. It's probably part of the literature which the sectarian Songs of the Sage was based upon. Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers. That's a quote from a fragment which seems to have been speaking prophetically. That term, watchers, it's a word used of certain angels, and that's evident in the book, the biblical book of Daniel, in chapter 4, verses 13, 17, and 23. It's without doubt used of angels by Daniel. It is also found in the profane Greek literature, where it's used in the same manner in the works of the epic poet Hesiod, which predate Daniel probably by about a hundred years. Hesiod said that upon the bounteous earth, Zeus has three times 10,000 watchers to watch the deeds and the judgments of men. As we explained on many occasions in the first several installments of Pragmatic Genesis, there are only two races of hominids in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, which is Christ and his race. I am the vine, you are the branches. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would include the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. Other so-called races of hominids must belong to this later tree for two reasons. First, 
because God does not take explicit credit anywhere in Scripture for creating that. Second, because in all of the eschatological prophecy, all of the end-time prophecy, there are only two choices, good fish or bad fish, according to Christ, Matthew chapter 13. But remember that nothing that Yahweh created was bad. Yet that net, when it dips into the sea, takes up two kinds of fish. That word kind is genos. It means race. Good and bad. Wheat or tares, sheep or goats, sons or bastards, and ultimately, the city of God or the lake of fire. When we make our next presentation in the series on the non-Adamic races and eschatology, we shall elucidate all of this in the words of the prophets as well. Psalm 86 is interesting. From verse 1, Bow down thine ear, O Yahweh, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry daily unto thee. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, the word Adon appears often here in the psalm in Hebrew, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plumbiness and mercy to all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Yahweh, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee. O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. <clears throat> Verse 9. All the nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee. O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and dost wondrous things. Thou art God alone. What nations did Yahweh create? All the nations whom thou hast made. It doesn't say thou hast made all the nations. The Genesis 10 Adamic nations were created by Yahweh, and then the nations which sprung from Abraham, <clears throat> which are primarily of the children of Israel. From Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. The only people I remember Yahweh ever taking credit as having formed and made Adam, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 5. Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was half Persian and half Mede, so Herodotus called him a bastard. He was 100% Adamic. Yahweh called him a man of gold. 
Isaiah chapter 45, I believe. He might be mentioned in 44. And the children of Israel. That's it. And all of their descendants, of course, including Christ. No other nations were created by God because the Bible is the book of the race of Adam. The nations are explicitly defined in Genesis chapter 10. They are the nations of Adam. And if any other nations exist, as now in modern times, other races are apparently organized into nations, mostly by white men, God cannot be accredited for having created them. There is indeed scriptural support for this assertion. In John chapter 8, we see these words asserted by the enemies of Christ. We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. In Malachi chapter 2, we see this dialogue in the words of the prophet, which explains what the enemies of Christ said to him. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God just like Christ told those people in John chapter 8, who said, we be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Christ denied them that. He told them that his Father was different than their Father. They had not a common origin with him. Now, of course, they had a partial common origin They were children of Abraham through Esau, or perhaps through Shelah, which is what Malachi chapter 2 references. They were Canaanites. They were partly from Noah. They were mixed. If Judah married the daughter of a strange god, a reference to his Canaanite wife, then ostensibly the Canaanites were not among the nations which God had made. Canaan himself, regardless of the circumstances of his conception, was nevertheless a white Adamic male. Yet it is evident from Genesis chapter 15 and the subsequent Canaanite history that his descendants had mingled with the Kenites, the Rephaim, and other tribes which are not listed in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 10. Therefore, they did not come from Adam. They may have had names... In Genesis chapter 15, 3,500 years after the creation of Adam, they sure as hell didn't have names back in Genesis chapter 2, and they don't appear in Genesis chapter 10. Men sin, and angels sin, and the results of their sin cannot be attributed to God, even if God foreknew of their sin, which of course he did. David never said, oh, God, why did you make me sin? No. Your bastard child is not the fault of Yahweh your God because 
even though he knew you were going to do that before you were created in the womb, as you did with Esau, when you did it, you agreed that you were doing it. You sinned. David never said, God, why'd you make me do that? <laughs> no, not once. With this, we are going to examine some other terms from Scripture. The first, the phrase, host of heaven. This term is a double entendre, meaning that it has two meanings at the same time, basically. It refers to two different things at once. First, it refers to the planetary objects and the stars. This is apparent in Deuteronomy 4.19, where Yahweh warns Israel from idolatry, and he says, Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which Yahweh thy God has divided unto all the nations under the whole heaven. And he tells you why. Not to worship, to be a light for the day and a light for the night, right? Back there in Genesis chapter 1. But the term host of heaven, it can also refer to the angels of God. And it's used that way in 1 Kings 22.19. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. It is not a coincidence that the pagans later named the astronomical objects of their God, after their gods. And that's where the two ideas converge. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Mercury. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, no one must judge you in food and drink, or in respect of feast, or new moon, or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things. Whereas the body is of the anointed, let no one find you unworthy of reward, being willing with humiliation even in the worship of the angels. Stepping into things which one sees, heedlessly inflated by the mind of one's flesh, and not grasping the head. Paul talked about the worshiping of the angels or messengers. New Testament saints believed angels could be spirits, that such spirits had the form of man, and that departed men became spirits which they called angels. Two scriptures shall be cited to support this. From Acts chapter 12, verse 15, when the people at the home of the mother of Mark thought that Peter was dead, but Peter was knocking at the door, and the girl reported it, and they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. And they said, It is his angel, his spirit. They didn't believe it was Peter. Again, from Matthew chapter 14, the apostles watching Christ walk on the water. They were kind of thrown for a loop by that scene. 
And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. That shows you what they believed. That spirits could have the form of man, could appear to be man. New Testament saints believed angels could be spirits, and that such spirits had the form of man. And that departed men became spirits, which they called angels. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul discussed the worshiping of angels. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul phrases such idolatry differently, calling it the worship of demons. Verse 14, on which account, my beloved ones, flee from idolatry. And I'll skip to 1 Corinthians 10, 18. Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, Israel, according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. Paul's talking about the pagan dispersions of Israel. What then do I say? That which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. The modern Stephen compounds these things, compounds them for us, where he explains of the idolatry of Israel as it is recorded in Acts 7.42, speaking of the disobedient Israelites of the Exodus, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophets. They weren't worshiping the stars and the moon and the sun. They were worshiping Colossians chapter 2, angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, demons. spirit beings that at one time in the very distant past, or perhaps physical beings that became bastard spirits, are labeled as being responsible for the creation of the pagan religions. Here are four examples of the idolatry of Israel from Scripture. In each one, the King James Version translators employed the English word devils. However, two different words were translated such. Deuteronomy 32.17, they sacrificed unto devils. The word is shed. It means a demon. Not to God. To gods whom they knew not. To new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers not feared. There were pagan idolatry, there was pagan idolatry, as the book of Joshua tests, amongst the fathers of Abraham. Terah, Haran, they were idolaters. The book of Joshua tells us that. We've cited it here. I can't recall the citation off the top of my head. But Joshua explains that to the children of Israel. Well, Abraham was called out of that. Here we see that not only did the, the, the children of Israel worship those old gods, those old pagan idols, but they also worshiped newly contrived idols. 
The word for devils in Deuteronomy 32.17 is shed. It means a demon, a spirit being. In the Greek language, a demon, dahimon, is a spiritual being considered to be inferior to God. Demons were small g gods. Psalm 106, 37 and 38. Yeah, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. And that word is shed, demons. And shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And land was polluted with blood. Now, I'm not saying that spiritual beings appeared to man and invented false religions. It doesn't have to be that way. But these fallen angels, who when they died, their spirits, their corrupt spirits created the spirits of bastards, they are the contrivers of these false religions. That's who Scripture attests, that's who Scripture, I'm sorry, ascribes these things to. I don't care if you want to believe that it happened when they were walking the earth as man, or if it happened after they died and they were worshipped for some reason after they died. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul says that this pagan idolatry is tantamount to the worship of the angels, and also says that it's tantamount to the worship of demons. These inferior spirits. Psalm 106, 37 and 38. Yeah, they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils. That word is shed, demons. And shed, I'm sorry, I already read this one. The word shed which appears in Deuteronomy 32.17 and Psalm 106.37, is Strong's number 7700. It's a demon. It only appears in the Old Testament in these two scriptures. Now, the word demon appears very frequently in the New Testament of evil spirits embodied or disembodied. The spirits of bastards in Enoch. In the New Testament, it's also used to refer to unclean spirits, although unclean spirits are often something different, seemingly. The Hebrew word shed is related to terms which mean violence, ravage, waste, or destruction. These demons were seen as a destructive force. 2 Chronicles 11.15 the word devils appears, and he ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils. That word devil is different. That word devil is the word from which we get the Greek word and therefore the Latin and the English word satyr. And he ordained him priests for the high places and for the satyrs and for the calves which he had made. And one more time, the word devils appears in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17.7 And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, unto satyrs. That's the Hebrew word. After whom they have gone a whoring, children of Israel, whoring after satyrs, 
appointing priests for satyrs. Keep this in mind, because we're about to talk about satyrs. A satyr, Strong's 8163, is just what it says. The mythical half-beast, half-human monster. The word comes from a Hebrew term which means to storm, and therefore to be rough, or to be hairy, as in being rough, as Esau was. Esau may have been the first satyr, probably not the first recorded Adamic satyr. It can be used to describe a he-goat, for which it is used, or a harsh rainstorm, or a rough land. The same word that gives us satyr gives us the word seer, in Mount Seer, a rough land. The same word gives us the name of the Latin, the Roman storm god, Saturn. It's the same word, satyr. Saturday is satyr's day. Ain't that appropriate? That's when these Jew bastards had their Sabbath. The word made its way into Greek in the fashion of the mythical Hebrew sense of a demon, where in the classical era it was depicted, usually not always, as a relatively harmless party animal, half man and half goat. But in more ancient periods, satyrs were much more foreboding, and we'll get to that in a moment. Well, the word for Seder is translated in these two passages in the Old Testament as devil. There were two other uses of this term Seder, Seder in Isaiah where it was not translated at all. So the word really appears four times in Scripture. Where the word shed, as in demons, seems to only appear twice. Isaiah thirteen nineteen. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian, the mixed-race Arab, pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant places, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. And owls in that passage does not come from Lilith. However, it does appear in Isaiah 34, 8. For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island. And the satyr shall cry to his fellow. And the screech owl, that's Lewis, the female demon, also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. I don't think it really means screech owls and, and, and half goat, half men, but I do think that satyrs and liliths are what we might term today as people. We'll get to that. Where in Isaiah 13, 21, and 34, 8, satyrs are mentioned, the Septuagint has an obscure word. The word is Hono Cantorus. According to Liddell and Scott, 
a phonocentaurus is a kind of tailless ape. And their authority for that is the writing of Helianus, where he used the term to describe a tailless ape in his work De Natura Animalium. Book 17, Chapter 9. They also say that it's a demon haunting wild places, but their only authority for that is the Septuagint, as the Septuagint uses the term for a translation of the Hebrew word from which we get Seder. So a holocentaurus, or a tailless ape, is a Seder, and there is also verification for that. However, we see this idea of a Seder in the minds of the Hebrews who made the Greek Septuagint translator that they were tailless apes. Seders were not always depicted as half man and half goat. I'm going to read two passages where Clifton Emmerheiser, in his Identifying the Beasts of the Field, Part 3, offers definitions of the world word Seder, first from the 1894 edition, which I know Clifton has on his bookshelf of the Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 21, pages 336 and 337. Seder. In ancient Greek mythology, the satyrs were spirits, half human, half bestial, that haunted the woods and mountains, companions of Pan and Dionysus the Greek idols. Fancy represented them as strongly built with flat noses. That's important. Flat noses. Simian noses. Pointed ears and the tails of horses or goats. They were all roguish and wanton, but faint-hearted folk, lovers of wine and women, ever roaming the wild to the music of pipes and cymbals, castanets and bagpipes, dancing with the nymphs or pursuing them, striking terror into men whose cattle they killed and whose women they made love to. Imagine that. Little animal creatures with flat noses raping your daughters. Couldn't imagine that could ever go on, huh? Check out, check out outside your window. In the earlier Greek art, they appear as old and ugly, much like wild apes. But in later art, especially in the works of the Attic School, this savage character is softened into a more youthful and graceful aspect. Sounds like modern niggers. There is a famous statue, supposed to be a copy of a work of Praxiteles, representing a graceful satyr leaning against a tree with a flute in his hand. Today it would be a basketball player. In Attica, there was a species of drama known as the satiric drama. It parodied the legends of gods and heroes, and the chorus was composed of satyrs. Euripides' play of the Cyclops is the only extant example of this kind of drama. The symbol of the shy and timid satyr was the hair. In some districts of modern Greece, the spirits known as 
Calicantsars offer points of resemblance to the ancient satyrs. They have goats' ears and the feet of asses or goats, are covered with hair and love women and a dance. The herdsmen of Parnassus believe in a demon of the mountain whose lord is of hares and goats. That, that's modern Greece. In the authorized version, quoting the same article, of Isaiah 13.21 and 34.14, the word Seder is used to render the Hebrew serim, hairy ones, a kind of demon or supernatural being known to Hebrew folklore as inhabiting waste places is meant. A practice of sacrificing to the serim is alluded to in Leviticus 17.7, where the English version has devils. They correspond to the shaggy demon of the mountain pass of old Arab superstition. But the satyrs of the gloomy Semitic deserts, faith in which is not yet extinct, are much more terrible than those of Greece. A second witness, which Clifton cites as to the nature of the ancient satyrs, a second witness is the World Scope Encyclopedia, volume 10, under the topic satyrs. And this quote is in part, in Greek legends, a race of woodland spirits who personified the free life of the forest. They were generally represented as half human and half animal. The upper part being that of a human being and the lower that of an animal. Their appearance was both grotesque and repulsive, but their life was one of pleasure and self-indulgence. They must have had satyr welfare checks back then, too, and EBT cards, maybe. Mostly given to the chase and wild music. At intervals, they partook of wine and indulged in restful slumber. Both mortals and the gentle woodland nymphs dreaded them, mostly because of their reckless sports, like the polar bear game or the drive-by shooting. They were represented in the train of Dionysius and were inseparably connected with his worship. Greek poets delighted to praise the innocent frolics of the little satyrs. Imagine that. They must have been liberals. The sculptors represented the older forms as nearly approaching human beings, but placed horns upon their heads and gave them the feet of leg and legs of goats. The satyr of Praxiteles at Athens is a famous specimen of Greek sculpture. Pliny, the Roman naturalist, used the word to indicate a kind of ape. If the children of Israel were making idols, appointing priests, and sacrificing the satyrs, as 2 Chronicles 11.15 and Leviticus, Leviticus 17.7 says they were, then ostensibly they were worshipping tailless apes, or perhaps apes with the form of men. And these are the angels who are bound in chains of darkness. Paul said they were worshipping angels who were worshipped by the ancient Israelites and who are spots in our feasts of charity today. These are the demons. We certainly can make the obvious conclusion because in our popular culture today, we are doing that same thing once again. The Arabians themselves, 
people of mixed races were said by the ancient Greeks to be at least somewhat civilized. Strabo describes many of them in Book 16 of his geography. However, he also describes other people dwelling on the far coasts of what we call Arabia, down and down the Nile to what we call Ethiopia. He does not consider any of these people who I'm about to describe in the pages of Strabo to be Arabians or Egyptians. He does call some of them by geography Ethiopians. Theodore Siculus describes different types of Ethiopians. of whom I have a lengthy description in the paper of Christogenia entitled The Race of Genesis Can. And I'll get to that tonight, just to that passage. Here's Strabo on some of these people that dwell on the outskirts of Arabia and along the Dead Sea and down the Nile. And remember that in, in the Greek world, the Nile was the border between Egypt and Arabia. East of the Nile, they considered it Arabia until they got down to the fourth cataract and they considered that Ethiopia. And the Egypt itself was west of the Nile and the Nile River Valley itself. So their picture of the world was a little different than what we have on modern maps. Here's Strabo. Along these rivers, meaning the, the Nile and, and the branches of it to the south, along these rivers live the Rizophagi root eaters and the Hele, or marshmen, who are so-called because they cut roots from the adjacent marsh, crush them with stones, form them into cakes, and then heat the cakes in the sun's rays and use them for food. Nearby are also the Spermophagi, seed eaters, who, when the seeds fail, live on nuts, preparing them for eating in the same manner as the Rizophagi prepare roots. Deep in the interior was a place called Endera, a settlement of naked people who used bows made of reeds and arrows hardened by fire, and generally they shoot wild animals from trees, but sometimes from the ground, and they have in their country a great multitude of wild cattle, and they live on the flesh of these and the other wild animals. But when they take nothing in the chase, they bake dried skins on hot coals and are satisfied with such food as that. And to the Creophagi, which are meat eaters, the Greeks named these nomadic tribes of Negroes by the food they thought they ate, of whom the males have their sexual glands mutilated and the women are excised in the Judean, or Jewish in the translation, in the Judean fashion. And I would think that perhaps certain Jews were converting savages at that time also. However, there is no circumcision for females in the Bible. Also above these, approximately towards the south, are the Kunamagi. Now, Kunamagi is a word which means bitch milkers or female dog milkers, people that 
the Greeks esteemed, lived on the milk of female dogs. Above these is situated a tribe of no large size, that of the struthophagi, or bird eaters, in whose country there are birds the size of deer, which, although unable to fly, run swiftly like ostriches. The Ethiopians called Simi. Now, Strabo is not saying that all Ethiopians are called Simi. He's pointing out a particular tribe of Ethiopians who are called Simi. The Ethiopians called Simi carry on war with these people. They use as weapons the horns of gazelles. Now, that word Simi, that's an English rendering of the Greek word Simos. And the Greek word simos means flat-nosed, like those satyrs, from which we get our word simian, which describes things related to apes. Neighboring this people, the simi, are the acridophagi, locust eaters, who are blacker than the rest and short in stature, and the shortest lived for they rarely live beyond 40 years since their flesh is infested with parasites. After the harbor of Eumenes, as far as Diere, and the straits opposite the six islands, the country is inhabited by the Ixiophagi, a word which means fish eaters, and the Creophagi and the Colobi. The Colobi means mutilated ones, those who circumcised their genitals, who extend as far as the interior. The ichthyophagi collect the fish and the ebb tides. They're not really fishermen, right? They just look for the low tides and try to capture the fish with their hands or baskets. Throw them upon the rocks and bake them in the sun. And then, when they have thoroughly baked them, they pile up the bones, tread the flesh with their feet, and make it into cakes. And again, they bake these cakes and use them for food. Pretty gross. Some of the people who inhabit part of the coast that is without water go inland every five days, families and all, with a shouting of pines to the water reservoirs, throw themselves upon the ground face down, drink like cattle until their stomachs are filled as tight as drums, and then return to the sea again. They live in caves or in pens, roofed over with beams and crossbeams consisting of the bones of whales and small fish, as also with olive branches. The Kelanophagi, or turtle eaters, live under the cover of turtle shells, which are so large that they are used as boats. But some of these people, since the seaweed is thrown ashore in great quantities and forms high in the hill like heaps, dig beneath these and dwell under them. They throw out their dead as food for the fish, the bodies being caught up by the flood tides. That's Strabo's geography, some excerpts from chapter 4. The ancient Hebrews certainly would have been familiar with tailless apes. Theodore Siculus, he describes some Ethiopians who were very cultured and who understood Greek learning and Greek literature in, in um, 
Book 3, Chapter 8 of his Library of History, Chapter 6 and 7, I'm sorry. In Chapter 8, he says, but there are also a great many other tribes of Ethiopians. Now here it's apparent, after he describes the cultured Ethiopians, that he's only using Ethiopian as a geographical label, not as an ethnic one. Some of them dwelling in a land, lying on both banks of the Nile and on islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia between the Nile and the Red Sea, and others residing in the interior of Libya, which would be the rest of Africa or Sudan as we know it. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. Tell me that would be described as a satyr, meaning rough and hairy, woolly hair, flat noses like we see in the descriptions of the satyrs. Here it is evident that Theodorus is describing the Nubians and other wandering tribes, black tribes of the region. And he says, as for their spirit, they are, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another. Sounds like the niggers of Detroit and Philadelphia, right? And cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. That's Theodore Siculus, who wrote up until about 35 B.C. Ancient Hebrews certainly would have been familiar with tailless apes. The word Arab as a verb means to grow dark. As an adjective, it means something which is mixed, which is how and why it was used by the Hebrews to describe people, the Arab tribes, which started out as distinct white tribes. The progenitors of the Arab tribes Joktan, Sheba, Ishmael, Peleg. Read Genesis chapter 10. See where they settled. They all settled all over Arabia. If the Arab tribes, which started out as distinct white tribes, were growing dark, it is ostensibly because they were mixing with these black so-called peoples who dwelt on the edge of their environment these savages, these tailless apes, angels chained in darkness. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next week with the other races in prophecy. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. <laughs>